Matthew was a, was a book that was known as the bridge builder. It was the first book of the New Testament. Uh, it quoted the Old Testament 125 times, so thus connecting the Old Testament prophecies with the New Testament uh, promises and fulfillments. And uh, it's had a main message. Jesus is, is the Jew. It was written to the Jews, and Jesus is your king. He's the Messiah. And, and Matthew was... Um, Basically, Jesus is revealing what his kingdom is going to be like in the book of Matthew. And it wasn't necessarily the kingdom the Jews were looking for. They were looking for a kind of a political takeover, an earthly kingdom now, outward. But the kingdom that Jesus reveals is an inward, heavenly, spiritual kingdom. And it's very important to keep that in mind as we study through uh, Matthew um, it makes it really gives us more insight into what's going on there. Um, chapter one, Jesus, we get Jesus's lineage, his claim to the throne, a little bit about his family. Chapter two, um, um, we uh, have people coming to worship him, um, but it wasn't the Jews. It was those wise men from the east, which is interesting. And, and God protects Jesus in chapter two from his enemies. Herod trying to kill him. Chapter 3, we have the heralding of Jesus' kingdom. He's, he's about to enter into ministry, and John the Baptist shows up, um, the original hippie. And, he, and, and he's paving the way for Jesus. And, he, and, he, and basically, he had one message, repent, which is the prerequisite to the good news of Jesus Christ. You've got to turn from your sin. You've got to admit your sinner and turn from your sin. And also, God heralded Jesus there, his arrival at his baptism. God spoke from heaven. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended in the image of a dove and anointed Jesus for ministry and immediately drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan and proven worthy to be our king. You know, he didn't succumb to temptation and through that gave us example of how we can overcome temptation. We need to know the word of God. That's what Jesus used. We also need to know who we are in Christ Jesus. And we also need to rely on the Holy Spirit, not our flesh. And so, um, after the temptation, Jesus, in the remainder of chapter 4, we see the king establishing his base of operations. He heads north into the hinterlands, of um, Galilee of the Gentiles, to the town of Capernaum on the sea. And um, he picks up kind of where John, John's been put in prison, so he picks up where John left off. Um, saying repent. That's the first step. You've got to turn from your sin. And, and uh, he started healing people, preaching, teaching, casting out demons. People started hearing about it, and they were, walk they were coming to see him from a 100-mile radius, walking, being drawn to Jesus. And as a big crowd gathered, Jesus sits down, and he delivers his manifesto of the kingdom, kind of lays out what his kingdom is in. And, and deals with things, and, and known as the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it was. And, and as he said, last time we uh, saw the first 16 verses, we studied that the last time I, I taught. Uh, the first 12 verses are basically Jesus revealing characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, also known as the Beatitudes. And, and blessed or happy is a person who has these characteristics. If you're uh, a citizen of the kingdom, you'll be poor in spirit. You'll know you, you, that you're bankrupt spiritually with nothing to commend you to God, and you'll mourn over that. 
You'll mourn over the death caused by your sin, and you will be a meek person. I love Pastor Chuck's definition of, of meek. It was put a hyphen in between the two E's. Me, eh. That's how you feel. You're not about me anymore, but I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And you become merciful. You forgive like you've been forgiven. And, and by the blood of Jesus Christ, your heart is purified and you can see God and you become a maker of peace. You want to be at peace with all men and you want to help them to be at peace with God through sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And, and then if you're a citizen of God's kingdom, you will be persecuted because Satan and the people who are part of his kingdom don't like citizens of God's kingdom. Jesus also told us about a couple of roles we'll have. Number one will be salt. You know salt, it flavors, it preserves, it heals, and it creates a thirst. And that's what we're to be spiritually in this world for Jesus Christ. And also, we're to be light. We are light, he said. The Jews were supposed to be the light. Christians are supposed to be the light. And the light, you know, it drives out the darkness, provides warmth, and it illuminates. And again, we are that. And if we're not being that, Jesus said, hey, you know, you're good for nothing but to be cast out. You know, and, and the Jews weren't, they were not fulfilling those roles. And us Christians can be in that situation as well. We need to heed that warning. So, in verse 17, where we're going to start today, the king now turns his attention to his old covenant he had with the Jews, the law. See, the Jews had failed. And Jesus is going to show them how here in the next, till the end of the chapter, he's going to, he's going to deal with that. And he's therefore going to establish a foundation for a new covenant, a better covenant that he's going to be making. So we'll begin reading there in verse 17 of chapter 5 of Matthew. Jesus says, Do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus we know was the Son of God. He was the perfect man. And in being the perfect man, he never sinned, and he kept the law perfectly. But the way Jesus kept the law was totally different from these Pharisee and these religious guys there. It was a totally different thing to where people kind of began to wonder, I wonder if Jesus is going to, he's not about that, he's going to destroy the law. He's going to get rid of it. And so Jesus says, no, it's not what I'm about. The kingdom that Jesus the King is revealing is characterized, though, by loving heart obedience to God and love for others. And Jesus demonstrated that life filled with love and joy and what one man called, it looked like a dance with God. He just loved God. Whereas the Pharisees' religion, on the other hand, they were striving. They were utterly focused on the letter of the law and keeping the rules. You know those kind of folks. They're so focused on the rules. Well, it's like they couldn't see the forest for the trees. They were intense. And there wasn't any love there. It was all self-focus. Self-righteousness. And, you know, religious people like that, they're not happy people. They don't have that joy. Sandy Adams said, how Jesus lived and what he taught never violated God's intentions. Because Jesus knew the heart of the law. He knew its intent. And being the law's author, Jesus, God, knew the law was summarized in two foundational laws. Love God with everything you got, and love your neighbor as yourself. Really summarized in one word, love. And so, 
Hold on just a second. Get my notes in order here. The Pharisees' approach, on the other hand, you know, they, man, they weren't about that at all. And, and so Jesus, but Jesus did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. It spoke of him. It says in Hebrews 10, 7, then I said, the must, Jesus, be, you know, would be communicating, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to prove it right. And he fulfilled it in every way, keeping the laws, performing the ceremonies and the sacrifice and culminating in his final sacrifice on the cross of himself, which fulfilled everything, fulfilled all the laws, the animal sacrifices, everything. And, and basically, it was the final sacrifice. There was no need for any more sacrifices because the Lamb of God had come, who had taken away the sins of the world. So, Jesus, going on there in verse 17, says in the second part, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. When Jesus fulfilled the law, he was accomplishing the purpose for which it had been given. The law is a list of rules, righteous requirements of God, and the law is fulfilled when a person keeps it. Jesus fulfilled it with perfect, in perfect obedience. Romans chapter 13, verse 8 tells us, He who loves has fulfilled the law. You see in a theme, it's love. The law is all about love. The way the Pharisees kept the law, well, it wasn't very loving. But we accomplish the purpose of the law when we love God and all others. And the law shows us what love's, love looks like. And through the law, we see that we basically don't love God and others. We love ourselves, which is, that's what the world, our flesh, and Satan, they tell us to do. Therefore, because of that, really failing to fulfill the law, the law has a secondary purpose, to show us our need for a Savior. You know, the law entered that the offense might abound. And we would have not have known sin except through the law. See, if you don't know the speed limit, you don't know if you're speeding. The law was given to show us we're not righteous. It's not a cure for our sin. It reveals that we are sinners. It's like an x-ray. Can't heal us, but it can show us where we're broken. And that's what the law was there for. It says in Galatians 3, 23 and 24, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law, the law basically served as our guardian before we got saved, to keep us in line until we grow, grew up into faith in, in Jesus Christ. And the law is very good, and it's not going away. And it must be fulfilled. The, the, the demands of the law must be met in order for people to go to heaven. And the good news is they were by Jesus. Praise the Lord. Amen. And so, verse 18, Jesus says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by, by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. 
The jot, the jot was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle was the smallest mark, kind of like crossing a T or dotting an I. And every little tidbit, Jesus is saying, must be fulfilled for one to enter God's kingdom. And that can only be accomplished through the substitute sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and God accounting his righteous, righteousness to us as we repent and believe. Like it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He, God, made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 19, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, the, the point is we're not saved by external adherence to the law of Moses. We're saved by repenting and believing and being born again. Believing in Jesus. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will love the law. You'll love it. Because the Holy Spirit, the new covenant tells us, has written it in your, law, in your mind and in your heart. And a born-again believer will never want to break the law or go against God's word in any way. His desire, a person who's born again, is to live a life of faith that pleases God every day and in every way. But if a born-again believer begins to not do what he knows the Lord has written in his heart, he'll become miserable. He'll become unfruitful. And he will... Uh, as he begins to teach through his example or words, cause other people to stumble as well. And Jesus says his status in the kingdom will take a big hit. He'll go down to least. Verse 20, For I say to you, listen to this, this is like the key verse to the rest, whole rest of the chapter. He says, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to exceed the righteousness of these guys. Now, that must have blown all the listeners away. Because, see, these Pharisee guys, they were professional law keepers. All they did all day long was focus on keeping the law. Jesus says you've got to go beyond their cold, heartless, if you will, compliance of the Pharisees we got to go to heart compliance. Like the Pharisees, us folks here in the Bible Belt, we can, we can think, you know, kind of made a list here. I have my shoes shine, my pants pressed, my hair combed, my teeth brushed, my Bible in hand. I'm in church. I even walked the aisle, made a public commitment to Christ, got baptized, paid my tithe, prayed my prayers, taught Sunday school, sang the songs, worked in ministry, went on a mission trip even. So I'm right with God. But it's not those outward, though they're good, it's not those outward actions that make us right with God. It's our heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says that God does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. He's looking for a heart that trusts Him and wants to please Him. It's not the heart we're born with. God's got to give us that heart. A heart that is filled with with his spirit and filled with his love. 
That happens when we're born again. Jesus' spirit comes to dwell within us. And that heart of love will enable us to be righteous to the place where we exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And, that, and then we will be fulfilling the law, the purpose of the law, which is to love. We must love, you know, because God is love. You know, and, and love is defined. 1 Corinthians 13, you guys know it. Love suffers long and is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't parade itself. Love isn't puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. It doesn't seek his own. It isn't provoked. It doesn't remember things done wrong to it. It doesn't get off on iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the love of God compels us to share, to love other people and to share with them about Jesus and his salvation. And the scribes and the Pharisees could not manufacture love through performance. They couldn't do it. The law commands love, but it cannot impart love. Love comes to us as the Holy Spirit sheds the Holy Spirit abroad in our hearts. That's how love comes to us. We're born again. Now, in order to do that, again, I said we must come under the new covenant. And I'm going to read that. Um, it's found in, in Hebrews 8, quoting Jeremiah, where the Lord says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And I will be merciful on their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's the new covenant. And under it, God writes his laws in our hearts and in our minds. Then we are set free from having to keep the law to wanting to keep the law. It says, I've heard one guy say, you know, when you come to God, he doesn't ask you to change. He changes what you want to do when you're born again. And I found that to be so true, especially in my own life. And at that point, as born again believers, we come to a third purpose for the law, which is an awesome one. It informs our faith. As we return to study the law as believers in Jesus Christ, knowing that it, that's not going to make us righteous, we begin to see pictures. It begins to paint pictures for us. And you know, a picture is what? Worth a thousand words. Man, as we see these pictures, we realize they are physical pictures of the spiritual realities we now walk in. And it grows us. It educates us. It teaches us. It sets us apart and makes us like Jesus as we get into that. So the rest of chapter 5, Jesus shows how the Jews kind of softened these requirements of the law. And they missed the mark. The Jewish leaders had, in many ways, like I said, softened the requirements of the law and thus made it seem possible that they could keep the law. Jesus, they were wrong, and Jesus is going to blow the doors off that. Verse 21, he says, You've heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders is in danger of judgment. So Jesus, that's how this is going to go. You've heard it said, but I say. That's what he didn't say for the rest of this chapter. 
Well, who was it who was saying these things? Well, the rabbis, the Jewish leaders and teachers, the scribes and Pharisees. And what's their implication in what they said here? I'll read it again. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. Basically this. Just don't murder. Don't kill anybody. No love necessary. Because if you do kill somebody, physically you'll be in danger of judgment. And again, this is kind of an example or softening. An oversimplification. Because Jesus there, in the next verse, says, Not so fast, my friends. Verse 22, Jesus says, Say to you, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause will be, shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, which means empty head, or idiot, I guess. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. The requirements of the law are much greater than the Pharisees' interpretation. And Jesus here is emphasizing our attitude, even over our actions. Attitude will produce actions. And, but sometimes our action may be right, but our attitude is wrong. And God sees that. And you may not have murdered someone physically, but God looks at your heart. And if you're angry at someone without a cause, <laughs> God sees that. You know, you may be angry with your brother without a good reason, for selfish reasons, and that's a sin. Being angry isn't always a sin, if you have a good cause. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. We look, at, we look to Jesus, the perfect man, who never sinned, always did what was right, to example for us how to be angry and not sin. And the question becomes, when did Jesus become angry? Well, it wasn't ever when he was personally offended or when somebody was attacking him. You remember what did he say on the cross as he was being crucified? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But Jesus did become angry during his time here on earth. Some of the examples were, hey, remember in the temple, Went into the court of the Gentiles. Started overturning the tables. He was angry about that. Why? Because God was being misrepresented. It was the only place the Gentiles could come and find out about God. The God of the Jews. And what were they seeing? Hey, God wants to rip me off. God's a cheat. God wants my money. And that's bogus. That's not. And so Jesus would get angry, not when he was personally offended, but when... God was being misrepresented, and people were being kept from coming to God. Think about, again, little kids. Parents were bringing their little kids. And the, and the disciples said, he ain't got time for that. And Jesus got angry. He said, let those little kids come to me. For such is the kingdom of heaven. And also, he got mad when the Pharisees would not permit people to be healed on the Sabbath. And so he got, but his reasons were, un, were unselfish reasons. Now, in contrast, I get angry for selfish reasons. My anger is without good reason so many times. I'm supposed to forgive because like I've been forgiven. But instead of lacking meekness, which is a characteristic of a citizen of God's kingdom, I seek revenge. I get mad. 
I want to get back at what somebody for what they've done for me. And my unrighteous anger lacks a righteous cause. And I do let the sun go down on my wrath. And let it fester, get bitter, hold a grudge instead of forgiving immediately that day. That's what the Lord calls us to. And therefore, I give place to the devil when I do that. We do. To do his dirty work, to create havoc, to separate people from each other, to steal, to kill, to destroy. That's what he's all about. Somebody will cut me off in traffic and I'll say, Raka! Empty head! You idiot! We laugh because it's too true. And I hold on to that. Someone is selfish towards me and wronged me, and I refuse to forgive. And in my bitterness, I despise them and condemn them, and I might even judge them a fool. And I'm in great danger, as Jesus says, very close to being judged myself. Verse 23. If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is calling people to be reconciled. Now, he's not telling us, go and dig up every old hurt. The key phrase here is, when you, when, if you come to the altar, bring in your gift, and you're there. The implication is the Holy Spirit's there, and he begins to convict you. And that's happened to me. I don't know about you guys, but I, that happens to me on occasion. I'll come, I'll try and get into prayer, and where the Lord will just remind me, yeah, you got something you need to take care of. you got somebody you've hurt or offended. And you need to go handle it. Don't, don't bring your worship in here. You know, because to God, being reconciled to your brother or sister in Christ is as high a priority as your worship. We're the family of God. Loving your brother in Christ is how we show God that we love him. Remember what he says? If you did it to the least of these, my brethren, what? You did it to me. Loving each other is loving God. Jesus said in John 13, verse 34 and 35, that the sign that everybody will, we, will know that we are his disciples is what? That we love one another. God wants us to love, guys. And in the kingdom of God, love is such a priority that, to God that he doesn't want our worship if we're mistreating a brother. We haven't made it right. But the Pharisees, they had no time. They had no time for any of these relationships making them right because they were too focused on their self-righteous efforts to keep the law. And we can get that way. we got to watch it. Too focused on being religious. 25. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you pay the last penny. Now, Back in Jesus' day, if you were in debt, wasn't no bankruptcy. You couldn't file for bankruptcy. You had to pay it off, or your family and you could be sold into, into slavery in order, until you paid it off. And there weren't any police officers to go out and gather them up, those people that you're you know, trying to collect your money from and bring them into the judge. If somebody owed you something, you had to go get them yourself. You had to get this adversary and bring them before the judge yourself. And so Jesus is saying, if you're guilty of owing a debt, you need to work it out quickly with your adversary, who you owe, make a deal with him on the way before you see the judge, 
or you're going to end up locked up. You're going to end up in bondage. In light of Jesus' spiritual kingdom we're studying here, there's a great spirit, there's a powerful spiritual picture, strong picture we can, be seen, we can see. We are in, dead, in debt spiritually. But who's our adversary? Now, you know, I always think about Jesus, and I know him, and I know that Jesus is for us. And so it can't be God, but the Bible tells us our adversary is the devil. He's against us, isn't he? You know, he, he's our opponent. He accuses us night and day before the Lord, and he's right a lot of the time. But here's the deal. We don't owe Satan anything. We owe him nothing. And it was a struggle. And then the Lord, by his spirit, through my sister Anne, helped me to see this at a home fellowship one night when we were getting into a lively discussion about it. <laughs> home fellowships are awesome. Amen? And she said, you know, our adversary is God. And she was right. Even though he's for us, we have put ourselves in an adversarial position with God by our sin and rebellion. We owe him a great debt. And we're in trouble, guys. And he doesn't want to be our opponent. He, he doesn't want to be against us. He, he wants to... We were created to, have, to live in loving relationship with God. But you know what? Because of all our sin and rebellion, we're headed for judgment. No matter how much we argue, fight, or deny it, we owe the debt to God and we're not getting out of it. Unless... We make a deal ahead of time. Unless we settle out of court. If we don't make the deal ahead of time, we will end up in the eternal prison called hell. But know this, like I said, God does not, he's not against us. He doesn't want to be in that adversarial position with us. And he is for us and created us with that loving relationship. And he's ready and willing to make a deal. In fact, he's already set the deal up. He had his son, Jesus Christ, pay off our debt through a sacrificial death on the cross. And all we have to do is take the deal. It's that easy. It's close. It's, it, it, you don't have to go to the mountaintop or go to the depths, as it says in Romans 10. It's on your lips. It's right there. Just say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe. I believe you raised him from the dead. What a deal. So all we got to do is repent and believe. Agree along the way with God that we're sinners who deserve to die and go to hell. And agree that we'll turn from our sin. And believe in that deal God is offering. Jesus paid off our debt through his substitute sacrifice on the cross. And God has given evidence to the legitimacy of the deal in raising him from the dead. Amen. And that we need to act upon that belief by making him Lord and King of our life and following forever. It's a great deal. you got to do it. It's like my grandson, Ollie, said to one of his buddies. He said, do you believe in Jesus? He said, no. He said, you got to believe in Jesus. Are you going to the fire? You know what, guys? I'm going to say it again. Make the deal. Love is the highest priority in God's kingdom Jesus is ushering in. So important to God as the perfect father for his family to get along and love each other. 
We need to stop hating and judging anybody, especially God, and get along. You know, and that's the problem with the people who are trying to keep the law. They were too focused. And it would develop in them, instead of love, it would develop in them this self-righteous pride. And separated them from people. That's what Pharisee means. It means separated. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. The Pharisees would say, don't have sex with someone other than your wife. But Jesus would add, but I say to you, whoever looks to a woman to lust after her, has already committed adultery in his heart with her. You know, God gave us a sex drive. He gave it in order that we would desire our spouse, we would be fruitful, we'd multiply and have godly offspring. And it's also this beautiful expression between husband and wife. But you know, that drive has been corrupted by sin. And it can overwhelm a person in certain situations and make it easy to begin to lustfully consider someone other than their spouse in their mind. Jesus says, when that happens, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. A person might say, hey, I never actually slept with her. God looks at the heart, remember. It's so easy to sin, isn't it? It's impossible. It's impossible to be righteous through our own efforts. The only way to have victory over our lust and sin is three steps. Number one, 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, If you say you don't have any sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth isn't in you. But if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just because of what Jesus did on the cross to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. Second thing, renew your mind. If you're struggling with lust, first confess it. Immediate confession. Don't fight it. Don't fight it. Confess it. And then renew your mind to who you are in Christ. You know, we're, we're a new creation, Romans 6, 6 tells us, in Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us now, Galatians 2, 20. And, and even though our flesh remains the same, and there's nothing good in it, and it's fighting against it. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's what we do. And just get back to following Jesus and walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Set your mind on the Spirit. Confess your sins. Remind, renew yourself to who you're in Christ. And then... Ask the Lord to fill you with His Spirit once again and set your mind and follow the Spirit. And He will lead you. you you'll, the, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. You'll have self-control in your mind to take every thought captive into Christ. You're focused on Jesus and lust won't control your attention again. Forgive yourself. We need to forgive ourselves too. A lot of times people beat themselves up over their sin. Just forgive yourself. Like Lloyd said when he was here, man, you're going to go through this again, another five days of beating yourself up? It's not doing anything. Just, I've forgiven you. Forgive yourself. And move on with the Lord right then. That's what he wants you to do. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. 
For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Now, Jesus here is using hyperbole. That's a figure of speech in which exaggeration is used for emphasis or effect. You know, and he's emphasizing the need to take drastic measures to overcome our sin. But he's not being literal. Look, if you pluck your right eye out or cut your right hand off, you still got your left eye and your left hand to sin with. He's not being literal. But losing a hand or an eye, Jesus is saying, is less important than, than ensuring that heaven is your home. That's what he's saying. We need, to, we need to make sure nothing is important is that you end up in heaven because your eternal destiny is in the balance. So just don't let everything be the same old, same old. You know, do whatever it takes to overcome your sin. No price is too high to pay. Victory requires an uncompromising attitude towards your situation. It may require cutting off that friend. It may require leaving that job, moving from that place. It may require plucking the internet out of your house or whatever. But it's, sometimes we've got to get drastic with it to get away from this stuff. Cut off whatever it is that's causing you to lust. Get away from it. Here's the deal. The law is no help with this at all. In fact, it's maybe worse. It may make it worse. It does usually. Because the harder we struggle against lust, striving in our flesh, the more we focus on it, the stronger the lust becomes. And it's almost impossible to overcome without the Spirit's help. But in the Spirit, we can do it. Just get out of that situation. Start following Jesus. The best practice, again, immediate confession, renewing your mind, yourself, to who you are in Christ, and walking in the Spirit. Verse 31. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. You know, the Pharisees taught, hey, you can get a divorce. Just give her a certificate and it's done. That's what the law says. Some Jews, Jewish teachers made uh, that law Moses gave in Deuteronomy 24.1, they said it encouraged divorce. But Jesus says, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Jesus says in order to be justified before God in getting a divorce, you have to have a good reason. And there was a great debate going on at that point. Um, in Israel during Jesus' time. Divorce was rampant. And they were debating over just, why, why, there was one guy, man, he said what Jesus said. But this other guy, Hillel, he said, you can get, you can get a divorce for almost any reason. Just, just some uncleanness. You know, if your wife makes you unclean, if she makes you mad, she's made you unclean. And you can divorce her. And that's why, that's why dowry was so important, because it's like alimony in advance. Because you never knew back then, you know, whether your marriage was going to make it or not. Once again, Jesus says, not so fast. There are grounds for divorce. There are no grounds for divorce except sexual immorality and unfaithfulness. Now, Paul did add desertion on the part of an unbeliever as an acceptable for God. Therefore, in God's eyes, if a person is divorced for any other reason than those two reasons, 
then they're committing adultery. That's what Jesus, and if you marry somebody like that, you're committing adultery. You know, God gave through Moses the certificate of divorce because Jesus said because of the hardness of people's heart. But it, the whole situation is really a very un, unpleasant and unloving thing that happens where two people are separated who vowed to be devoted to till death do they part. The rabbis softened God's requirement regarding divorce, but Jesus says God's expectation is much more stringent. Matter of fact, Malachi says God hates divorce. Divorce conveys one, uh, covers one's garment, Malachi said, with violence. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. If you've been through a divorce, there's forgiveness in Christ Jesus. But you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's a horrible situation. A close friend of mine right now, his wife is divorcing him. She really doesn't have any grounds. But her heartless determination are both spiritually violent and treacherous. And I've got to tell you guys, heartbreaking. So I ask you to pray for my friends, Mark and Amanda, that God would change her heart. And remember, unjustified divorce, at least for the spouse, is a sin, at least for the spouse who instigates it. It's not the unforgivable sin. I always like to say that because sometimes in the church we act like it's the unforgivable sin. It's not. And you can be forgiven in Christ Jesus and all things are new in him. But it's, it's God, it, it hadn't been so with God, Jesus will say in another, look, another place. The only unforgivable sin is where a person calls the spirit a liar when he testifies to the gospel and that Jesus is who he says he is. It's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But always remember 1 John 1, 8 and 9 again. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 33. Again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall be, perform your oaths to the Lord. Pharisees when said, when you take an oath, you better keep it. Jesus said, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. God can do that. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus said, look, don't swear oaths at all. I mean, he loathed oaths. He loathed, he had, try and say that three times in a row. He loathed oaths. When you swore an oath by something bigger than you, and then you broke the oath, the implication was that the higher power you swore by was now responsible to bring you in line, to bring you into accountability. And the, third, the third commandment said, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't waste your time using God's holy name for any purpose that doesn't honor him, because his name is holy. God is holy, and his name is, which would include not swearing by or to God. Jesus says, when you swear to heaven and earth or Jerusalem or your own head, you're still swearing to God because those things belong to him. Swearing an oath implies that you may be a dishonest. You need to prove you're not. Now, if you're in court, you're required to take the oath, so be it. But otherwise, 
Oaths don't prove anything. Don't take them. They don't prove anything. Jesus says swearing an oath is of Satan. Because we know he's the father of lies and he's always trying to convince people he's not lying. Don't be like him. Tell the truth. Say yes or no and mean it. That's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 38, he says, you've heard, of, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Pharisee says, if somebody does something wrong to you, do it back to them. That's fair. But I, Jesus, tell you not to resist the evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus says, don't strike back at an evil person. Love them. Love retaliates with love, not hate or hurt. Don't worry about what's fair. Show concern for them. Take their abuse and respond back to them with loving concern. Be concerned about whether or not they're saved. That's what we need to be thinking about. Like Jesus, who while on the cross, like we said before, said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing, which was totally unselfish and others-centered. He's our example of this. If anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, don't turn away. Man, this wasn't what the Pharisees were like at all. These are incredibly hard, though, almost impossible things to do when someone has been unfair to you, made you angry. Now, in this passage, note, Jesus is not stripping the government of its ability to defend. Neither is he stripping individuals of self-defense. I mean, this is, this is on, the, on the right cheek. The way you slap somebody on the right cheek, boom, it's an insult, a backhand. Most right-handed people are right-handed. That's how you slap somebody in the right cheek. It's more of an insult. And he's not suggesting that we become doormats because sometimes when you love somebody, it means standing up to them. But what it does mean He's speaking of being personally offended here. Not responded. These are not, let me, let me say this. These are not responses that you have if your concern is fairness with yourself. Jesus is saying the priority is love for people, not demand for my rights. And, and he mentions four rights here we can lay down in this situation. Number one, our dignity. Somebody slaps you on the face. You know, what do you immediately want to do? Don't do it. Possessions. Give up tunics and clothes. Be willing to share. You know, if somebody needs to give more. Give beyond. Hey, go the extra mile. We lose also our liberty. He's saying, just give that up. Don't worry about that. Hey, go that extra mile. Be willing to do it. And security. It's, it's more important to me that you survive than I keep it and thrive. That's what he's saying here. Lay down your life on behalf of others, like Jesus has done for you. And here's the deal. Only the agape love of Jesus Christ poured out into our hearts really can able, enable to do these things. These are, sometimes these things are getting more impossible to do as you go along, especially if somebody's really offended you. The Pharisees' legalism never produced this. Verse 43, you've heard it said, shall love your neighbor 
and hate your enemy. Scribes and Pharisees said, love your neighbor. That's hard for them. Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. But it doesn't say hate your enemies. They added that. They thought it was implied. The Jewish teachers and the rabbis did that. And there were times now, don't get me wrong, in the Old Testament where the Jewish people in battle would defeat and destroy their enemies. But that was an issue of God's righteousness and just, justice, not because they hated somebody because they'd been personally offended. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the son, his son, his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We are to love our enemies like God loved us while we were his enemies. You know, Romans 5.10 tells us that while we were still enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. And that's, that's really the way God called it. Abe Lincoln, man, he said, the best way to get rid of your enemy is to make him your friend. To seek to be reconciled to him instead of hating him and fighting with him. We're to love our enemies. Be kind to them, do good to them, and seek to reconcile them to God through Jesus Christ. Even when they curse us, they hate us, they use us, they persecute us. And then we will be like God. <laughs> Tells you what God's like right there. And he loves us anyway. Then we'll be like God who sends blessings of the sun and rain even on everyone, including the evil and the unjust. Verse 46, moving down. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren also, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. The, the, the Jews thought, love your neighbor but only your neighbor who were Jews. And they had to be good Jews, clean Jews, definitely not tax collectors. They hated the tax collectors, and they hated Gentiles. They thought the Gentiles were only good for being fuel for the fires of hell. And they refused to show kindness to them. They didn't even want to make a mistake and do it. You remember the, the parable of the, Pharise the, uh, 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 the Good Samaritan? where the priest and, and the other Jewish leader, they saw somebody on the road, they didn't know who he was, so they passed by on the other side. Because they didn't want to be good to them if they weren't a good Jewish person. And, hey, they're that, that's not of God, so obviously they're not upstanding. But even the people the Jews despised loved those who loved them. And so Jesus says, what reward is there in that? Certainly none before God. So Jesus, in these verses, has exposed how the Jews have fallen way short of the righteousness according to the law. But then in here in the last verse, verse 48, he slams the door. On anyone thinking he can be righteous before God based on keeping the law, based on works. When he says, therefore, you shall be perfect. 
Just as your heavenly, your father in heaven is perfect. I'm out. <laughs> we all are. No one's perfect but Jesus. So the important thing is, what do we do here? We cease striving. We quit trying to be through our own self-righteous efforts. You know, the Pharisees, if anybody gave it their best shot, the Pharisees did. And they failed miserably. Got them nowhere. As we repent of our righteous efforts, our self-righteous efforts, I'm sorry, the burden lifts and we admit, you know what? I can't do it. That's a good place to be. When you get there, when you're poor, that's called, being, that's called the poverty of spirit. Being poor, poor in spirit. But the spirit of Jesus can and does. Which leads us to the glorious liberty and freedom. And that feeling of, ah, relief. I'm forgiven. The weight is removed. But, again, if you try to stand before God on your own merit, you've got to be perfect. We're not. So, instead, like we said earlier, take the deal. Take Jesus' deal that God has set up through Jesus. You paid your debt by his blood on the cross. Jesus will fill you with his spirit. And then, your righteousness... Because Jesus is in you, will exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, both internally and through your actions outwardly. You'll do what God wants you to do. You'll love people. And you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus' kingdom has fully come, after his millennial reign, this picture of righteousness that Jesus laid out in this passage will be reality. This is going to happen someday. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Everyone will love God with all their heart. Everyone will love their neighbor as themselves. But until then, remember, truth, the fruit of the Spirit, is love. And God's love in your heart is the key to living the kingdom way now. It's the only way to live the righteous life described in this chapter. And when God's love is flowing through our hearts, His will will be done and His kingdom will come. For now, though, the only place the kingdom of God exists on this planet is in the hearts of every born-again believer. So hang on to Jesus for dear life. Hang on to Him. He's our only hope. His blood is the only thing we got. But I say to you, He's all we need. Jesus is enough.